0: Sorry 16, sixteen babies born that year named jezebel I started the uh, I started the recording a little late we're going through the probably the top six characters in our reading for tonight so we have elijah elisha ahab Jezebel we're just finishing up on Jezebel we've had a lot of comments on Jezebel all right so then Jehoshaphat I think is a is a pretty big character he's one of the kings of Judah, which is the southern kingdom Ahab was Israel, which is the northern kingdom, the bigger kingdom. Jehoshaphat was uh, a king for a while in Judah, the southern kingdom, the smaller uh, kingdom. Uh, he had a very good heart, and he's known for having a very good heart, but not quite the sharpest knife in the drawer. He, was, he just wasn't, didn't have a lot of wisdom. He was very impetuous, and um, the, the thing about him, though, was at least he would often lobby for everyone to truly seek God's wisdom and will in whatever endeavor they were thinking about taking on. And then the last one would be Jehu, who's one of the better kings uh, who, whose reign filled much of the later chapters that we look at tonight. He made many good reforms after many kings before him screwed things up, uh, but he still lacked, it's like he couldn't quite get completely on board with God. He's He's that person who was able to give ninety to ninety-five percent of his life to God, but he he held back that last five to ten percent. I know there's nobody in this room that does that. Um, now, why would he do that? And and I and I th- there's no indication why in in Scripture. And so I just started thinking about that, and it might be just a level of shame. And I'm also thinking about why we do it. There might be a level of shame. There are some things that. You know, even though God knows everything and we know he knows everything, there's still, it's just like we can't give that to him because we're sort of uh, um, ashamed. Maybe it's a, a, a tiny bit of a lack of faith or it's a latent desire to retain some measure of, of control or a perception of control over some part of your life. Uh, his issue, I think, is very common. Many of us, if not all of us, we struggle with the same challenge. Um, also, I think the contrasts, in how the two great prophets, Elijah and Elisha, are presented is interesting. There are longer, sometimes I think seemingly meandering narratives about Elijah, uh, but much of Elisha's life and narratives are much shorter and to the point. It's like you get these little uh, one paragraph stories about Elisha. You get, you get entire chapters about Elijah and then just chapter after chapter about Elijah Uh, Elijah performs eight miracles that we know of. Elisha performs 16 miracles that we know of, which is interesting because um, Elisha asked for a double portion of the blessing that God gave Elijah. I'll talk about that in a minute again a little bit. And yet, even though Elisha has more miracles recorded, uh, Elijah is the one that we hear about most in the New Testament. He's the one that we hear about most from Jesus, and he's the one that that seems to get all the press in the New Testament testament and i think elijah the first one and martin luther who's the great reformer from the 16th century were kindred spirits because both had a brooding often depressed personality always kind of seeing the world as glass half empty or even glass 90 percent empty they just sort of had that that perception elijah however elisha s-h-a is much more upbeat but he seems to have quite the temper if you notice so he has wider swings in his personality I think and yet both of them were used in mighty ways by God now some other thoughts and observations and then we'll get into our groups I want us to remember our context for tonight the kingdom has been divided for a little more than 50 years so what happens is in um, uh, 922 Solomon dies and then there's this uh, falling out and we we end up with a divided kingdom and we have a, a, the northern kingdom Israel uh, with their uh, their capital city is now Samaria and um, they have ten tribes in the north and then the southern kingdom is Judah and they just have two tribes, Judah and Benjamin but they retain Jerusalem and so that, that's that's what we have and, and they don't get along sometimes they would get together and do things together but they really didn't the kingdoms didn't really uh, get along. So we're 50 years into the divided kingdom when we start this middle portion of First Kings. Uh, and that's why it's sometimes hard to keep track of the kings because you're flipping back and forth between Israel and Judah, northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And Ahab is the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, the bigger kingdom. And he has gone completely off the rails in case you didn't notice while you were reading. Uh, One of the things he did was he built a temple and an altar for Baal, who's maybe the most sinister of all the false gods, and he also set up an Asherah pole. Uh, uh, Asherah is the fertility and sex goddess, and so he sets up this Asherah pole. The pole is the place where you would worship Asherah and offer sacrifices to her. It was also the precursor for the Festivus pole in, in Seinfeld, in case you're wondering where they got that. And then uh, during Ahab's reign, he also allowed the city of Jericho to be rebuilt, which was a huge mistake. If you read Joshua chapter six, God tells Joshua, anybody who rebuilds this city is going to be smote. If you don't know what smote means, look it up on the internet. It's, it, you don't you don't want to be a smoted person or a smite meeted, whatever it is. I don't understand. Okay. Anyway, so under Ahab's and subsequent king's leadership, God's people are just hurtling towards judgment and exile. So 922, the kingdom gets split. 722 BC, the Assyrians come into the northern kingdom and sack the northern kingdom and just blow that apart, make them all intermarry. And that's why uh, Samaritans later on had a bad rap uh, in the New Testament with with you know what you might call purebred Jews, um, and then uh, in 605 BC, so about 115 years later, 117 years later, 605 BC, and then again in 597 and 586, uh, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon comes in, and he goes through first of all, and he wipes out Assyria, and then he comes in through the north, and he comes in and 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 takes over Judah. In in 605 he he. He sacks Judah, but he does it in, in such a way that everybody's still able to live there. Um, not everybody did. He did carry off uh, tens of thousands of Jews, but there were still people, Jews, living there, and they had to pay him tribute. And the kings uh, in Judah that were supposed to pay tribute, they kept making Nebuchadnezzar very angry. So he came back again in 597, and then in 586... He was so angry with them that he came in and a completely obliterated Judah. It was unlivable at that point. And if you want to know what Judah looked like, and especially Jerusalem looked like after Nebuchadnezzar came in in 586, read the book of Lamentations. That will give you a pretty, good, a pretty graphic description of what it looked like there after uh, that. Also notice how common it is for the narrator of these books to introduce a new king by saying... And this king did evil in the sight of the Lord. We, we had this conversation this morning at uh, Preaching Collective. We, uh, uh, we got off track in a good way, but we started talking about how um, there are very few examples in the Bible of good leadership. There's Joseph. There's Daniel. I guess you could throw Jesus into that. Um, Into that mix, but you know you have to really work hard to come up with examples of good lead. But we've got tons of examples of really bad leadership, and and this is this is one of those things that points that out when the narrator has to say over and over and over with a new king, and this king did evil in the sight of the Lord, and and here you go, I don't. It's like the woe to you people in the New Testament. I don't want to be a woe to you person in the New Testament. I don't want to be an evil in the sight of the Lord person in the Old Testament. And I hope neither do you. It would be much better to just be with uh, Jesus. And so Elijah has the wonderful privilege of being used by God to be the thorn, the thorn, in Ahab and Jezebel's side. And it's a ministry for Elijah that is filled with both righteousness and tremendous suffering. One of the most interesting things I observed as I read is the fact that the kingdom, as the kingdom is crumbling all around Elijah and it's crumbling around Ahab and Jezebel, but they don't seem to notice because they're so focused on their own personal power they can't even see that the place is completely falling apart around them. But as it's falling apart, as the kingdom crumbles, economically, spiritually, communally, morally, legally, God continues to provide in every possible way for Elijah. Elijah's God's man, and and, and even though he suffers and he has some hard times, God continues to uh, uh, provide for him. So one of the things that we can remember about the call of God, a lot of people say, I'd like to be called by God. Okay, remember Elijah. Remember Paul. I want to be called by God. Remember how much suffering there is by these great people in the Bible who were called by God. So, a couple things to remember. Number one, God doesn't promise that his call is going to be easy. And so, just because something's hard doesn't mean that we're not smack dab in the middle of God's will. So many people will say, this is really hard. I must have missed God's will. No, that has not, there's no correlation between something being challenging and not being in God's will. That's just not true. In fact, I would, I would even make the argument, based on the, the biblical text throughout... chances are pretty good you're in God's will if if, if you're doing His ministry and you're following Him and things are really hard because the world is always going to push back against God. That's just the way it is. And then second of all, no matter how hard it is, God always seems to provide and protect, but He's going to do it on His time and in His way. And there are going to be times when He's providing for us and we think He isn't protecting us. And there are going to be times when He's protecting us and we're angry at Him because we think He's not providing for us. But then, in retrospect, after we've gone through things, we begin to see uh, the truth of what he's been doing for us. Of course, contained in our reading tonight is the great Mount Carmel showdown between Elijah and, and, um, and uh, Ahab and, and his 850 prophets of Baal. It's a wonderful narrative. I hope you read it. And if you don't, you should go back and read it, including one of my favorite parts, of course, yours too, I'm sure, You know, Elijah's taunt when they're beseeching uh, Baal. uh, Elijah's taunt that he must be in the bathroom and can't pay attention to what's going (laughs) on. Okay. Um, But here's one of the big things I get out of this Mount Carmel story. You know, all those people who say, if only God would do a miracle in front of me, then I would believe. Okay. Think about that story. God does this incredible thing in front of all of these people, including Ahab. And they just dig in even further against God. So they don't. It's, it's just like the raising of Lazarus in the New Testament. People saw a dead guy raised from the dead, and half the people there kind of went, whatever. In fact, half the people there decided we need to kill Jesus because he's done this. Okay, It didn't change their mind at all. It just made them dig in even uh, further. And so Ahab, in spite of his humiliating defeat, continues to honor Baal, as does the rest of the nation, except for eventually 7,000 people. Uh, Let me read 1 Kings 19, 1 through 4. Ahab, this is in the wake of, of the Mount Carmel thing. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She's threatening to kill Elijah. Then he was afraid, Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. So now he's in the southern kingdom trying to find safety and left his servant there. But he himself, Elijah, went on a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Uh, two things about Elijah. There's Elijah being depressed. He just had this magnificent victory, and he's depressed. Okay? Two things about that. And I could say a lot more about it, but I only have so much time. But number one, I get it. Sometimes I'm just done too, aren't you? I mean, aren't there times when you're just like, Golly, wouldn't it just be easier with Jesus? You know, first uh, uh, Philippians chapter one. Okay, so I get that. But second of all, here's the other thing. If you speak the truth in this world, even if you have utter proof to back it up, you're going to be persecuted. That's just the way the the way it is. Okay. so Elijah spends time in exile and his and in his misery, he tells uh, God tells Elijah of the remnant. He says, look, there's still seven thousand. So there's hope I can do a lot with seven thousand. So I've been saying this now for more than a year, that God works best not through achievement, affluence, and influence. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but God doesn't work best through them. He actually works best through exile and remnant. And so if, if we as a church, and I feel this, I feel this weight, so do the other pastors, so do many of the, uh, of the staff, we feel in our current culture, in our current world, we feel like we're in exile. And, and we feel like the body of Christ is actually getting smaller and smaller, more like a remnant. And yet, that's when God is really going to work. That's when God is really going to do something. That's when his favor works the best and his blessing comes out the most. Maybe because there's such a contrast to what's around us, maybe we'll notice it more. And maybe it's just that he knows that this is when he's got our attention and he can really start to work through us. And then can I just say, and I, I hope you read this passage too because I'm not going to unpack it, but... Poor Naboth. Now, if you don't know who Naboth is, you got to read the story. But poor Naboth. It, it's like the guy lives in Russia under Vladimir Putin, and Jezebel is Putin. That's kind of what it's like. So go back and read it if you don't know what I'm talking about. And then another problem with Ahab's reign we find in 1 Kings 22. He refused the counsel of anyone who disagreed with him. So here's Jehoshaphat in the midst of all of this, verses 7 and 8 in chapter 22. And Jehoshaphat's trying to do the right thing here, so this is why I like him. But Jehoshaphat said, is, they're, they're thinking about going to war, okay? And they're trying to figure out whether or not they should go to war. And so Jehoshaphat said, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel, Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imiah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. Okay? So he's a contrarian, so Ahab doesn't want to hear from him. So, um, in other words, let me put this in clinical terms. Ahab is really into affirmation therapy. Seriously. And that's, that's a problem now with the, the counseling industry today, is this thing called affirmation therapy. People get to self-diagnose, go to a counselor, and they go, yep, that's exactly what it is, and I'm going to help you, okay? Not in a good way, all right? That's a problem. He was also pra- uh, practicing something known as doppelganger leadership. And you've probably heard the word doppelganger before, right? Everybody supposedly has a doppelganger. Uh, most pe- who's, um, is it Randy Travis, the country singer? Is that him? Okay, so my doppelganger is the uh, picture of Randy Travis after he was pulled over for drunk driving. So that's my that's my doppelganger. Um, so look it up on the internet, and you're gonna go, holy cow, that really is. All right. So yeah. So when that came out, a friend of mine on Twitter, as a joke, posted a picture of it and said, "My pastor just got busted for DUI." Okay, so. And I'm doing his wedding in the fall. That's what a good friend he is. Anyway, so, um, anyway, um, doppelganger leadership is, it's not that you have somebody who looks like you, but you're a leader who will only surround yourself with people who think like you and agree with you and will never contradict anything that you say. And if you're interested in reading more about it, Warren Bennis has written a wonderful book about it. It's an older book. You may not be able to find it. It came out in the 90s. But he's the guy that talks the most about doppelganger leadership and what a problem it is for leaders who don't hear possibly contrarian views that might help them. So Ahab gets himself in trouble because he never hears a a view that might help save him from making a foolish mistake, and that's a problem. Now, it takes a while for all of this to get buttoned up, but Elijah prophesies that Ahab, Jezebel, and all their offspring will eventually be horrifically killed as punishment for their evil in leading God's people astray, and their blood would be lapped up by dogs. And this does come to pass. But why are the dogs particularly significant that, that, that dogs would lap up the blood? Anybody? Cheap dog food. Cheap dog food. There's a religious reason. Jews think of dogs as unclean. So there's tremendous irony there that the dogs are going to lap up the blood of Ahab, Jezebel, and their offspring. So this is, this is God's um, sort of weird sense of humor coming through in this here. And then 2 Kings chapter 2, enter Elijah. And Elisha bravely asks Elijah for a double portion of his giftedness, and spirit-filled abilities for his own ministry. And how does Elijah respond to this request? What you have asked for is a difficult thing. What you have asked for is a hard thing. It's just continuing with the reality that life is hard and you can't escape escape how hard life is by going into the ministry. I cannot tell you how many people think that going into the ministry will save them from the challenges and hardships of life. It's fascinating to me. I can't tell you how many people will talk to me about, oh, it must be nice to be a pastor. You don't have all the problems of the marketplace. Okay, we have, we have the problems of the marketplace in the church, plus a lot of other problems that never get injected into the marketplace as well. It's just fascinating to me. Ministry is... Hard. I'm not... Please, I'm not, like, begging for, you know... All right, this is like a counseling session. You're all my counselors, all right? <laughs> I, I'm just telling you, it's, it's harder than you think, all right? And you have to be called. I was told by the first pastor I ever worked for, he said, if you... The only reason you should be in ministry is if you absolutely cannot do anything else. That's the only reason you should be in ministry. And what he was saying is not, not do you have the ability to do something else? I think I could sell used cars, maybe. Okay, I, I know I can sell shoes. I used to do that. Okay, I know I can manage restaurants. I know that. It's not, do you have the ability to do something? He's saying... You just can't do anything else. You, whatever else you're doing is not what God has called and gifted you to do. That's the only pe- those are the only people that should be in ministry. You are called in that way to be in ministry. So we get lots of rundowns on Elisha's miracles, but here's what else we get during um, the narratives about Elisha. There's a lot of war, and it's not pretty. It's violent, it's malicious, and it's capricious. And of course, my question would be, why? Why? What is the purpose? And what should the reader glean from all of this violent war? Uh, Two suggestions. One, God is sovereign. And number two, most of the war is the result of idolatry and pride. Read the text. Most of the war is the result of idolatry and pride. What should that be telling us about idolatry and pride? Problems. Problems. We made a list in the preaching collective today because we're two Sundays ahead in the preaching collective. So it's, um, it's ver- uh, chapters 13 and 14 of 1 Samuel, all of Saul's failures. And, and so at one point during the collective, I started on the whiteboard just making a list of the things that generated all of Saul's failures. And at the top of the list was pride. And then everything else uh, that came in Saul's life came from pride. Pride is what starts... Everything else in the midst of that. And one of Elisha's miracles certainly foreshadows uh, Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 as well. Also, in 2 Kings 5, one of my all time favorite Old Testament narratives it's the story of the guy Naaman, the leper who is healed. And if you ever want, I'll do a 45 minute Bible study on chapter 5 of 2 Kings. It's magnificent. There's all kinds of stuff in there, fascinating for so many reasons. Last three observations and then I'm done. One, you ever noticed how many names in the Old Testament begin with the letter J? Okay, that's not going to change your life, but I think it's interesting. Um, Second of all, this won't change your life either, but I think it's interesting. You ever notice how much trash talking there is in the Old Testament? I mean, they're talking trash all the time. And then number third, number third, number three, don't you just love it that King Jehu Turned the Temple of Baal into a toilet, a public toilet. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? In your face, Baal! That's one of the reasons why I like Jehu. Okay, have fun.